0: See, Jesus, what he does is he takes our burdens and he puts them on himself. He takes our sins. He dies for them. He takes the penalty for them. And what false teachers do is instead of coming along and saying, hey, let me take your burdens for you. Let me bear them with you. They say, hey, you know, uh, what you're doing is good, but you got to do this, this, and this too. They lay a burden on you. Jesus takes it off. So I love how Paul in, the chapter, in chapter 6, he kind of highlights that once again, that Jesus came to, to take our our burdens. He gave us a burden. He said, take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. My, my yoke is easy. But he took off the heavy burden of sin. Now we have a new burden, and that is a burden for lost souls that are in the same spot that we once were in. And so Paul, he here in Galatians chapter 6, has said... In chapter 6, verse 1, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, this is a sin against God. If he's caught up in a life of sin, if he's got even a habit of sin, even though he's a believer, he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. He says, bear this burden with them. Yes, they're caught up in sin. It would be like if you were a shepherd or maybe you were a farmer. And you had an animal that you've given this huge plot of land that's got fence around it. It's got green pasture. It's got plenty of water. And that animal thought, you know, on the other side of that fence, there's way better pasture. And so that animal trudges over there to the fence, climbs through and gets caught. Now, if you know anything about farming, if an animal gets caught, can't eat anything, can't drink anything, it's stuck there to what? To die going to die there and so a good shepherd or a good farmer will go out there and find these animals he'll be aggravated but he because he loves those animals because he's invested time and money and effort into these animals he'll go out and find them and he'll get them out of the fence but here's the deal christians kill their wounded many times people in the body of christ will be caught up in sin they'll go out They'll see someone in sin and rather than go, hey, let me help you out of that, that's going to kill you, they'll go, I'd never get caught up in that, right? We, we judge people based on our own opinion when really we've done the same thing and the only reason we're out of it is because Jesus has delivered us. He's brought us up out of the miry clay and he set our feet upon a rock, the firm foundation of Christ. And so we make decisions every day, right? All of us do. And sometimes we make really good ones, and sometimes we make really bad ones. What we don't need is someone coming along and going, you made a bad decision. Although sometimes we're so dumb, we don't think we did. And we need somebody to go, hey, that was a bad decision. And then you go, yeah, I know, because I'm suffering the consequences. But then we also need somebody to come along that loves us enough to go, hey, let's get out of this. Let's go in a different direction. Someone to come alongside and help us out of that fix. The problem is, as many times we kill our own wounded rather than helping them. And so Paul says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted to do the same thing. Consider yourself, be honest about where you came from. He says, bear one another's burdens, verse 2, and as in doing so you will fulfill the law Of Christ, The whole book of Galatians is about how these teachers came in and told them, like, yeah, you can be saved by Jesus, but you also need to fulfill the law. You need to follow the Ten Commandments. Well, even the most holy of men in Israel found out that when they tried to fulfill all of the commandments, they weren't able to do it. Paul the apostle said, I did them all, but then I realized that I was coveting, that I wanted what someone else had for my own. And so that's, that's sin as well as murder and adultery and all the things that we call the biggies. And so what Paul said was, I couldn't fulfill a law on my own. I found out I needed a Savior. And just then I realized, and Jesus opened my eyes. He met me on the road. I was prideful, and he knocked me down off my high horse, and he brought me to a place of humility. Humility, many times, is the root word for humiliation. None of us want to be humiliated but it's those who are lowly in heart that God receives into his kingdom, those who have been humbled. And so Paul, being someone who's been humbled, has a heart for those who are prideful and need humbled. He prays for them. He bears with them. He encourages them. And he calls them out if he needs to. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be something, verse 3, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now don't raise your hand, but is anybody in here Ever experienced that personally? You thought I was going to say, does anybody in here know somebody else is like that? But I mean, I've had moments in my life, my wife's here so I can't you know, even sketch that a little bit. She's, she knows I've had long moments where I've thought myself to be something when I was not. And all I was doing, I wasn't deceiving her, I wasn't deceiving anybody else, I was only deceiving myself. God has a pure picture of who I really am without him. He says, let each one examine his own work, verse four, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. So let's fast forward just a few verses. He says in verse nine, he says, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. He says, he, he gives the example of sowing and reaping. It's like farming, right? Again with these farming references. Remember, Paul's writing to an agrarian society. They, they relied heavily upon what they planted, what they grew, what they were able to feed for their animals. And so he says in verse 8, he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows, sows to the spirit will of his spirit reap everlasting life. So he says if you want to live for the Lord, you got to live by the Spirit. And he talked about that in Galatians 5. He talked about how we can tell if we're living in the spirit or in the flesh. He says, But here's the deal God is not mocked. If you sow to the flesh in your life, if you live to please your fleshly nature, then guess what? You're going to reap the benefits of that. And the flesh only leads to death. Sinful behavior only leads to death. And then he says, But if you sow to the spirit, if you feed the spirit, if you live by the spirit, if you're guided by the Spirit of God, guess what? You'll reap everlasting life. That's what you will reap. And so he says, so in in this context, don't grow weary in sowing and doing good. If you will live for the good, you will reap for the Spirit. He says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I wrote this down about verse 9 and 10. We shouldn't be so concerned with our own pleasure that we overlook the needs of others. Don't be so concerned with your own pleasure, comfort, whatever, and then in doing so, overlook the needs of others. Many times that's what happens. In the eyes of the person who's a legalist, the people that we're talking about in Galatia, They were so consumed with being holy and righteous in the eyes of men and having this place of prominence that, guess what? They didn't care about the needs of others. If you want to, after this, go look at the story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan was a man who was in need. uh, the, The man who was basically beaten up on the road was left sitting there by a priest, by a Levite, And the one person that helped him was a Samaritan. And these were supposed to be some of the most ungodly people. But guess what? He had a heart for his fellow man. He wanted to help out. And so he says, don't grow weary in doing well for others. Notice their needs. Serve them. Remember, he just said in the beginning of this chapter, if you'll do that, you'll fulfill the law of Christ, the law of liberty. I've been set free from the law. Now I can serve others. So, on to our text today. In verse 11, Paul writes, he says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Paul didn't have a tendency to write his own letters past a certain point. I don't know exactly why. It just says that he had to write with huge letters. Now, what does that imply about Paul's physical ability? If he's writing, and he doesn't typically, but he has to write in huge letters, why would he do that? he can't see Paul can't see he's got he's got an eye problem and we don't know why this is we don't know if this is because of him being stoned literally they tried to stone him to death at Lystra we don't know if it's because he had some sort of disease that he had obtained through his missionary journeys those who go on missionary journeys many times they drink the water they eat the food they get sick I've done this modern day it happens too Now, I ask my wife, every time I go to India, I get sick as a dog. Sometimes it's a food, sometimes because I took my medicine wrong. There's all these different reasons, but travel makes a person very sick sometimes. And so Paul has this eye problem. He can't see very well. Many historians actually write that he had a a weak appearance. He had a hooked nose and his eyes leaked like it was gross looking. And so Paul wasn't like this guy that you picture in the stained glass that everybody's like, man, he's awesome. He was kind of a short, dweeby-looking fellow. They said he was really strong in his letters, but when he came in appearance, he was kind of a lame Like, he didn't look cool, he wasn't a good speaker, and he had a leaky eye. And so Paul's going, look, I wrote to you, See with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. Paul says, I'm so concerned about you because you've been dazzled by these false teachers that are trying to teach you that you have to earn your salvation. He says, I'm so concerned that I'm going to write the letter to you, even though my eyes are so bad I can barely see. See the big, large letters I'm writing to you with? When someone gets personally involved and approaches you and tries to serve you and take care of you, realize it's just because they care. There are people that do it for the wrong motives. Don't get me wrong. But when people get personally involved where they're really willing to invest financially, in time, and in effort, they're doing it because they care. Because there's no reward. Especially because most of the time you go to help somebody and they don't think they need help, what do they do? They bite you. They, they don't want your help. They'll lash back. And so Paul is writing this letter knowing that they're going to backlash, they're going to bite him. It's possible that in serving them, they're going to hate him more. And so Paul, he says, I I personally am involved in this letter, so realize that I'm very deeply concerned for you in your spiritual case. Verse 12, he says, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that you may not suffer persecution, that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised... Meaning those Jews that keep the law, not even they keep the whole law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So we've got three groups of people, well, three, a group and two individuals we're going to talk about. And they have freedom in Christ to do whatever God gives them to do. And there's these believers, these legalists, and they're the first group we're going to look at, verse 12 and 13. He says about them, he says, they desire to make a good showing. What does that mean, to make a good showing? I call that showing off. You know, it's like when I was about 10 years old, we went to Aurora, Illinois, where my folks are from. We'd always go see their family and their friends. And I say their family. It was my family, too. But we'd go up there. We'd see all these people that I haven't seen in years. Uh, there's girls there, we're, you know, not the family, but there's, you know, the non-family, their friends, they had daughters, right? I was about 10 years old, starting to notice girls, we were riding bikes, and I was like, I can ride a wheelie, I can do this on gravel, surely I can do this on blacktop, because we had gravel growing up. So we're up in Illinois, and with all these people I don't know, I want to make a good showing, right? So I get on that bike, and I start riding a wheelie. I've always been able to do cool stuff until people are looking, it's the weirdest thing. Because when people are looking and I ride a wheelie, I get nervous. I'm like, I'm doing it. And then the next thing you know, you know what happens? That bike goes down. I go over the handlebars and I bust my face. Is that a good showing? No, that's the worst thing. That's embarrassing, right? Nobody wants to fall in front of everybody. You want to do that when nobody's looking. Well, I always did. I always got it mixed up. I'd fall when, no, when everyone was looking and I would never fall on it. No one was looking. So my point is they wanted to make a good showing. I wanted to make a good showing. But these, these false teachers, these legalist people, they, they wanted to make a good showing. They wanted to brag. They wanted to show off in front of this group of people that they cared what their opinions were. Anybody got a group of people that they really care what they think? I do, unfortunately. And as I find that out, I realize that their opinion doesn't matter anyway. Not just because it doesn't matter, because it's God's opinion of me that matters, And so here we are, these false teachers, they want to make a good showing in the flesh. So do they do it or do they make other people do it? Here's what it says. These would compel you. They want to make a good showing, so they compel you to be circumcised. They compel you to fulfill the law. And what it says down there a little further is in verse 13, not even those who are compelling you to be circumcised, not even they keep the law. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 23, because in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus dealt with these guys pretty heavy. He, he actually used a phrase that's pretty, a, a lot heavier than we realize. He says, woe unto you. Now, if you ride a horse and you say, woe, what are you trying to get that thing to do? Stop. Stop it. Don't move. Woe unto you. You need to stop in your tracks, you need to turn around and go in the other direction. Now, a lot of people will say, woe unto you, right? But when Jesus, the King of all kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, the judge of all men, says to you, woe unto you, I would stop and listen. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. What Jesus thinks about you does matter, actually. He's the one that it does matter. So when Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, It says, "It says this." Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes, and to his disciples, saying, "This: the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat." Now, the scribes and the Pharisees—the scribes were those who would write down things; they would keep the law. They were kind of, um, kind of a a secretary for the Most Holy. Okay, and then there was the Pharisees, and the Pharisees—they—they thought pretty highly of themselves, and when they first started. What they did was they, they were a fence for the law. Okay, so picture it like this. You got your backyard, and you got your fence around it. I'm picturing mine. Maybe you don't have a fence around your yard. But what is a fence for? It's to keep whatever's in the fence in the fence, and whatever's outside the fence outside the fence, right? So if, if the law is inside the fence, and that's the safe place, and there's a fence around it, and outside of it is transgression against the law where you get in trouble because you broke the law, what they did was they said, you know what, we're going to move the boundary line just a foot, we'll build another fence, and then you won't ever have to worry about even getting close to breaking the law. But the problem with that is as they did that, and they went to the, the furthest extent that they could, basically what they did was they made the yard so small that nobody could do anything. They made a tiny yard with all kinds of room, really breathing room around it. And they said, you know what? We need to keep you in this small area so you don't sin. The problem is that you end up tying people down in a way that they were never meant to live. There was so much more freedom in Christ than they realized. So in Matthew chapter 23, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says, sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do but do not do according to their works. He says, do what they teach you. They're teaching the right thing, but don't do according to their works, for they say, and they do not do. You ever heard the phrase, do as I say, not as I do? That's, that's a difficult teaching, right? Because it's, it's hypocritical. Jesus said, I am holy, therefore you be holy. This I live up to the same standard that I expect out of you, is what Jesus said. And then Paul, his disciple, the Apostle Paul that we're reading, said, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. He's saying, everything that you see me do as far as me obeying the Lord, I want you to do that too. That's the same standard. We all live on the same standard. I, as a pastor, am called to live by the same standard that you are. You are called to live by the same standard that I am as far as I am following Christ. Okay, so we're all on a level playing field. Everybody. God is the one that's the ruler, and we are subservient to him. We are servants. But he says, For they say and they do not do. They bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. That was a sign what you wore. Your outward attire was a sign of how holy you were in the eyes of God. You know, we think about that as far as business people. You see somebody come in a really nice suit. You think, man, he must be up there. It doesn't mean that, does it? it you, can, you can dress a pig in a suit. Does that mean that that pig's anything? No. He's, you know what he's going to do with that suit? He's going to wear it, he's going to wallow back into the mud, and he's going to roll around. He's still a pig, you know. <laughs> or I guess the phrase is lipstick on a pig. It's pointless, right? And it's kind of creepy if you think about it. But, you know, the Muppets got it all in there. So, But um, but he says, Their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad. They enlarge in the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, They love greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men rabbi. That means to be a teacher. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher. And we'll get back into that, hold that page. So back in Galatians, here we are with these men who are trying to make a good showing, trying to find a way to brag. They compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. They do it, they compromise, and then they ask you to compromise so that they won't be persecuted. No self-respecting Gentile would identify themselves with the cross. That means somebody that's not Jewish. They would never identify themselves with the cross. Because the cross, like that we wear as a necklace, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But the cross would be essentially like our modern day wearing a... uh, death penalty, like electric chair or a needle. I don't even know if they do the electric chair anymore. But can you imagine if somebody's wearing around their neck an electric chair? It'd be creepy. You'd be like, they must be goth or something or whatever they call that now. They called it goth when I was going to school. You know, the black nail polish and all that stuff. But my point is, is like, you'd think, man, they're, they're kind of dark, you know, wearing a, you know. But in that day, the cross wasn't even mentioned in speech because it was so despised. It was a torture device. It wasn't something that was respectful, and so they wouldn't even mention it in conversation. So these men, they they bragged about, they wanted something to brag about, they compromised so they wouldn't be persecuted, and they persuaded people strongly to do things they wouldn't themselves do. They were also hypocrites. And so this is the people that were coming in and trying to tell the Galatian church, you need to do this. And Paul says, "I never asked you to do any of that. That's not the gospel at all. If you had a list of requirements to do, then Jesus didn't pay it all, and you're still caught in your sins. You're still guilty of and deserving of punishment. But then we get this salve to our wounds. You read about these guys who care so much what people think, and then he presents to us the one who's completely opposite, Jesus. So in verse 14, he continues on and he says, he says this. But God forbid that I should brag, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It's just an outward thing that people do. Any more, little boys get circumcised when they're born. It's part of just a, a clinical process because it's, it's cleaner. It's easier to keep clean. And so it's just an outward sign of an inward change if you do it at all. It's like baptism. Does baptism really gain you anything? Well, Jesus did it, and so we do it to identify with Him. But the deal is, is there are many people I know that have been baptized that do not walk with Jesus. They've done an outward sign, but inwardly they they don't honor the Lord at all. And it proves by how they live. And so the question becomes... Am I more worried about doing these outward actions or am I more concerned with what's going on on the inside? The legalist puffs up the ego. He flatters the flesh and he seeks to please the world. The true Christian crucifies all three of these things. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We don't live for those anymore. 1 John chapter 2 says that. First John two fifteen. John writes a pretty sobering thing. He says, "'Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world's passing away, and the, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever.'" What he's saying is if you love the world more than you love the Lord, you're going to have to struggle because you're going to want to do what pleases the world instead of obeying the Lord. And let me tell you, I tried this for years, years, wasted years, and God was so relentless in pursuing me and saying, look, you need to get over that. What you're holding to is going to kill you. It's like holding to a rope with a weight on it and somebody tossing you in the ocean. But the weight's made out of gold, so you don't want to let go. But guess what? When you get to the bottom of the ocean, you'll have the gold, and you'll die. No oxygen. So what the Lord says is, he says, let go of the gold bar, come back to the surface, and I'll give you rest. You'll have your life, but you'll have lost the world in your eyes. Which is more important to you? And so it also says in James chapter 4, the book right before 1 Peter, James four four, James, a different writer, writes this. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, which is a word that means war. Friendship with the world is war with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So which one are you a friend with, you know? And, uh, you know, the, the problem is, is that God wants us to be set apart. He's made us into new people. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. That's great news. We talked about it one night, and Stephen personally called it a do-over. You know, nobody starts this world perfect, but God gives us a do-over. Why? Because he loves us. Because he wants the best for us. He he knows what it's like. He came down here and lived among us. He knows the temptations. He knows we can't overcome it alone. So, Jesus is different. He doesn't lay a burden on us. He takes it off. And so God is not at all impressed by outward rituals, signs of devotion, He's watching to see who truly wants to follow him with their whole heart. And it begins in the heart. Who are really God's people? You know, that's the question. Who is really God's people? And I'm not saying, like, think of someone's name. But what identifies someone as a follower of Christ? Is it that they go to church on Sunday? Is it that they were baptized at youth camp years ago? Is it that, you know, fill in the blank of what you think it is that makes someone a Christian? Do they say all the right things? Do they never mess up? (laughs) If that's the case, I'm out. Most of those things never happen for me. Or is it something different? Verse 16 says this. It says, As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What does Israel of God mean? Anybody know what Israel is? Huh? The promised land. It's a country that God chose, a place of land where the, the Israelite people were given to dwell by God. They were given it to them because God chose to give it to them. And when they got there, they had to defeat all the people that lived there already. They had to battle for it. But as they entered into it, it was because God had promised. And when he gave it to them, he says, I'm going to be your king. So God was supposed to govern that nation. Well, what happened? Well, they did what we always do. God says, I want to be your king. And they say, we want a king like all other nations. But God was gracious. He gave them a king like all other nations. And then they struggled with idolatry. And they, they didn't follow him. And they didn't obey his commands. And God, in His grace, continued to bless them as a nation. So is it who are those who are Israels, or the Israel of God? Is it that nation, or is it anyone who comes to God by faith? I was just reading in Romans chapter 9 through 11, where basically, he says, "Not all of Israel are God's people. They think that they're God's people because they were born into a specific culture, into a specific family the descendants of Abraham. And there are many that are. There's a remnant. But what God says in his word is that anyone who surrenders to follow Jesus is actually the Israel of God, those who are governed by God. And I think this is interesting because if you turn with me to 1 Peter right after Hebrews is James, And then after James is 1 Peter. And this was what God says about his people. He's not talking about Jews. He's not talking about just Gentiles. He's talking about the called out assembly. You know what church means? The word ecclesia, which sounds like a really fancy word, it means God's called out assembly. People that have been called out of the world into the kingdom of God, and there are people called out to follow God, to be his people for his purpose. And what it says there in 1 Peter 2 is this. Verse 9. You are a chosen generation. God chose you. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. His own special people. In one translation, it says peculiar people. And I think we could all agree that most of us are pretty peculiar. He says, his own peculiar people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you see yourself as someone that God has picked, chosen? I I don't always see myself that way. But I read somebody this week, he said, do you realize the Father delights in you? When Jesus was baptized, and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, it says that the Father spoke audibly and said this, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And because we trust in the Son, who God the Father is well pleased with, what does he say about us? He's well pleased. He delights in us, like we delight in our children if we realized how much we are delighted in by our father who is in heaven, whether we got an earthly father or not, when we realize how much he delights in us, it makes it easy to delight in our own kids because they fail just like we do our father in heaven. But he says, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. God's own peculiar people for this purpose, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's, that's the value that God places upon us. He says, as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the chosen people of God. Verse 17, from now on, Paul writes, let no one trouble me. These people that have been mocking me and saying I'm not really who I say I am, they can come and tell me that to my face. He says, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. See, we've been looking at characteristics. We think of characteristics, we think of what someone looks like or their attributes. We looked at the characteristics of the legalist someone who brags, someone who's a hypocrite, and uh, someone who compromises. We looked at the characteristics of Jesus, who in contrast to the legalist, takes our burdens. With his freedom, you know what he did? He died for our sins. He let himself be killed so that you and I could live. He took away our sin and our guilt and our shame. He took it upon himself. He let himself be captured in order to set us free. And then... The marks that Paul explains that he has are not on our behalf, but he actually bears the marks of a disciple of Jesus. He bears the marks of persecution and torture and hatred, but he says it was all worth it. He says this, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. To him, these marks, these scars, they're trophies. They're proof. Hey, you don't think I follow Jesus. It costs me. cost me in my flesh. Physically, I've been harmed. But I've been harmed for the gospel. For my Lord who was killed for me, I can take a couple of pot shots. But then he says, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So he closes by saying, Not the law. Not your works. He says, The grace of God be with you. Recognize what you've been given by the grace of God. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But if you try to add something to the grace of God, you end up having nothing. It's one or the other. And so he says that. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, amen. And the word amen means so be it. So be it. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be what fills you and encourages you and pushes you forward to keep going when it's hard. And I say that because as he tells them to keep going, he says basically verse 9 and 10 again, let us not grow weary while doing good. Keep going is what he's saying. For in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. There's a big if statement there. You will reap eternal rewards if we do not lose heart. So he says, keep going. Therefore, as you have opportunity, do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. So let's pray. Father, we've been given so much. Your riches, God's riches at the expense of your own son so that we could be freed up to live for you. And so, Father, we, um, we confess to you that we have not fully entered into that. I know I haven't. I suspect many in here have not, and we thank you for the free gift of salvation. We thank you that it's not of works, lest we could brag about it. Uh, We thank you that it's all Jesus, and so because it's all Jesus, we don't have to worry about having bad days and good days because you died for those two. Help us to keep a short account with you. Help us to be real with you. Help us not to compromise so that we can avoid being persecuted in some way. Lord, help us to be bold. Give us boldness to share the truth. It's not just true for us. We're here because we know that the truth sets us free. And if it's true here, then it's true everywhere else too. That those who are still in darkness will be set free by the light of the gospel. And so, Lord, loosen our tongues. Open our mouths. We are so quick to brag and to boast and to tell everybody about the stuff that we've done. Give us a heart to truly tell people what you've done. They need you, Lord, and and we need you. And so, Father, help us not to keep that good news to ourselves. Thank you for the boldness of Paul. Thank you for his love for the Galatian people that caused him to be willing to make them mad in order to free them from bondage. Father, free us from any legalism we might have, but also help us not to use that legalism as an opportunity to continue in sin and give excuse for it. Lord, set us free from the things we still are ensnared by. You are able, even though we're not. So, Father, we rest fully in your grace, and we thank you for this opportunity this morning. I pray that you would bless each and every person that's here this morning. Give them joy encourage them for anybody that does not know you. Lord, open up their eyes, give them ears to hear, and Father, save their souls. In Jesus' name, amen.